Welcome to the Spokane Show, where I feature in-depth interviews with fascinating people while offering a fresh perspective on culture, community, and much more. I'll take you with me on deep dives into some of today's most compelling topics, and hopefully we're going to share some laughs along the way. This is a show about life, so please join me, your host, Eric Walker, for this episode of The Spokane Show. In Spokane during the early 2000s, there were two weekly newspapers. One was The Inlander and the other, the local planet weekly. During its brief existence, the local planet had swagger. It challenged the establishment, it poked the bear, and it created ripples in an otherwise placid lake of good old boy status quo, something our city and county government is still known for today. In February of 2000, Matthew Spohr and his new wife, Connie Miller, purchased the local planet from a computer firm after four publications. This was the same year Matthew became husband to Connie, a step-parent to Connie's three sons, and Matthew and Connie managed to launch a newspaper despite Matthew having never owned a business, worked on a newspaper, taken a journalism class, or even sold advertising. Overnight, Matthew Spohr became a self-employed working step-parent with bad business timing. Because soon after, the Wall Street tech bubble burst. The 9-11 attack shocked the United States to its core, and the country slid into a recession and then war. Media outlets started receiving envelopes of anthrax in their mail. The internet revolution began to change the landscape of the newspaper industry. And at home, Matthew's new wife and two of his stepsons developed life-threatening illnesses. And sadly, in June of 2003, Connie died of a rare disease known as perforia. I first met Matthew Spohr in 2003 when a partner and I purchased the local planet. Our venture into the newspaper business did not last at all very long. And my partner bought me out of my share, and soon afterward, the business was ceded back to Matthew Spohr. There was an attempt to find another local investor, but after that failed, the paper distributed its last issue July 8th of 2004. About half of all new businesses fail in their first five years, and this is a story of one of them. On this episode of The Spokane Show, I catch up with Matt almost 20 years later. He's written a book, a memoir, if you will, of that time in his life titled Making a Small Fortune. Tell my audience, or that one listener I have, what the name of your book is. So my book is called Making a Small Fortune, and the subtitle is Surviving Parenting, Publishing, and Porphyria, which are the three main themes of the book. It's my story of deciding to get remarried, becoming a step-parent, and starting a newspaper all at the same time, even though I had no experience in any of that. I'd never run a business, never took a journalism class, never sold an ad, never been a parent. So um, yeah, I kind of filled up my plate. Where can the listener find your book? So you can certainly go to matthewspore.com. There are links there for Amazon and BookBaby. BookBaby is actually the service I'm using to publish this. Amazon is easy for people. Boom, there you go. That's also the place where you can get the Kindle version and the audiobook version. BookBaby is great because it's an independent publishing service. We need to support those people. And I'll be honest, if you buy it from BookBaby, I get more money. Antis has said that they will carry my book. I've already talked to them. I talked to them last month. They said they would be ordering it this month. So you ought to be able to pick it up there. Great. Um, I have applied to be in the Get Lit um, Literary Festival next year. Uh, applications were due at the end of September. So crossing my fingers for that, I think that would be a lot of fun. I pitched my my book as a medical memoir. I figured that would be a good angle in Spokane since it's got such a large medical hub as part of the economy. How many have you written? This is my first official book under my, my name. I mean, like I've written 
tons of things. I've always been a writer in my life. That's sort of the thread through all of the careers I've had. So written exciting things like technical reference manuals. Those are really exciting books, but they're books. I, I do have another novel that I've written. I'm not quite happy with it yet. That's why it's not out. And this one I wrote many, many years ago, and it just took me a while to, to decide that you know, the time and the title and everything was right. Yeah, this is the first one out of the box. We're getting a little personal here, Matt. I remember back then you mm-hmm. lost your wife, mm-hmm. right? And that was during right. probably the height of the local planet. Yeah. So, so we started the local planet. Actually, we ended up buying the local planet from the people who started it. And that's something you'll learn about in the book. We bought it after the first couple episodes, which was in early 2000, which was horrible timing. And timing is a lot in business. So early 2000, suddenly the whole tech bubble on Wall Street bursts. And that really takes the economy down a couple notches. Uh, and then in 2001, you get obviously 9-11, which is another dent in the economy. You get people sending anthrax to media outlets. That was crazy. And there's a whole documentary on that, which was just nuts. So that really just was a lot of stress in the first 18 months of the local planet. Uh, That stress really took a toll on Connie and my wife, and she decided to leave shortly after 9-11 because we needed to do some restructuring like a lot of people did. But part of the reason she left was these nagging, continuing health issues, uh, which turned out after uh, quite an odyssey in the healthcare system to be this disease known as porphyria. It's actually a group of diseases. There's eight of them. Uh, and it's, a, it's an enzyme deficiency that shows up for her in the blood. But the thing to know about it is it builds up toxins in the blood that can attack any part of your nervous system, the voluntary or involuntary nervous system. So it can look like almost anything. And that's why it's hard to diagnose. Um, the actual test for it is pretty simple. It's just uh, a urine, urine analysis. But knowing to do that test is hard. And for, for some people, porphyria is something that comes and goes. It may, you may have one bad bout and that's it. You may have a, you know, bouts come and go. But for some people, it's like a downward spiral. And that's what happened for her. From 2001, when she left the paper, which was fall of 2001, to June of 2003 was really a tough 18 months of, of health. And then she passed away in June. The limited amount of time we had together, I just, I just, I could see it in your eyes. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you were missing your, your partner, you know, and, and, yeah. and I, I'm sorry that you went through that. I'm sorry that Connie went through that. Is there any advancement toward curing this? since then? Yeah, great question. Absolutely. Um, I haven't really checked in with the Porphyria people lately. And then I brought this book out and and I doubled back into sort of the Porphyria community. I've reached out to the Porphyria Foundation. They're going to be listing this book on their website. I'm going to do some sort of a little fundraiser with them around the book. Um, But one of the things I found was a company brought out a drug that's based on mRNA technology, which is the same stuff that we used for the COVID vaccines, oh. uh, interestingly enough. And this is, it's not a cure. It doesn't cure it, but it greatly reduces the symptoms of hereditary coproporphyria, which is the type she had. And it greatly reduces their need for other medications. So it, it makes it a much more manageable um, condition for them, which was surprising. I didn't realize that uh, MNRA is getting that that embedded into healthcare technology. 
The disease is tough and it's rare. The thing to realize about rare disease, rare diseases impact almost as many people in the U.S. as heart disease. Heart disease is the number one, the number one killer in, in the U.S. 30 million people experience heart disease in America on an ongoing basis. 25 to 30 million people have a rare disease. Now, the thing is, they have any one of 7,000 different rare diseases. So that's what makes it kind of tricky to put them all together, but they all have a similar experience. Some of that experience is it takes forever to get a diagnosis, two to 15 years for people with a rare disease. Along the way, they're going to experience dead ends. They're going to have diagnoses that don't work. A lot of them are going to have like major operations that don't do anything because it's a misdiagnosis. They're going to get some pretty horrible medical treatment. I published a post on uh, Facebook about getting gaslighted by your doctor. Some doctors will do that when faced with something they don't understand. And, and, and I get it. It's tough. People are expecting you to have answers. You know, you're not a miracle worker. You can't know everything. You can't catch everything. But it would be nice if some of them were a little more graceful. When I originally wrote this book back in, in 2006 and seven. That number of rare diseases was 6,000. So the estimated number has gone up 1,000 in 20 years. As we get better at big data and genomics, we're going to find more of these. And it's going to be more of a medical driver for a lot of people. So it's a big issue. You really have to advocate for yourself. Absolutely. I talked to porphyria patients, and and I, I saw this with Connie's oldest son, Brad. The doctors literally said, it's all in your head. One woman from Spokane who had this packed her whole family up, drove across the country to go to Johns Hopkins because there was a gastroenterologist specialist there, best in the nation, supposedly, who would help. That's what he told her. It's all in your head. But she was great. She looked at him and said, it's not in my head. It's right here. It's in my abdomen. I know what's going on. Rare stuff is not as rare as you think it is. It can be in your family. And it's also a big driver of healthcare cost. If you think about people who are in the medical system for up to 15 years, going from specialist to specialist, operation or treatment to operation or treatment, trying to figure out something, they're consuming a lot of healthcare along the way. You know, we may talk about chronic disease as one driver of healthcare cost. We may talk about extraordinary measures at the end of life as another driver of cost. But I think this rare disease is another big driver of healthcare cost in the system. It's not something I've wanted to spend a lot of time on, but bringing this book out, it, it's sort of reignited the, this is something we need to talk about as a society. One, one thing I wish is that if doctors, if doctors could acknowledge that rare disease impacted a lot of people, you know, 8% of the, the population, just like cardiac problems do. And then maybe they could dial into, okay, if I'm a, I'm a kidney specialist, what are the three or five most common rare diseases? Maybe I can put those on my radar. So when somebody's having something that doesn't look right, I have a list of, oh, let's go to these five. Maybe we should try these. Those are rare I'll never see those in my practice because that's kind of the attitude doctors have. I, literally, doctors told me that's too rare. Even after I told them, no, he told me that about Brad. And I said, no, his mom has it, which means he has a 25% chance of having it. Right. It's like, no, that's too rare. Why yeah. is it that Amazon can have an AI statistic algorithm for NFL football, but we can't <laughs> get that close to medicine? I, I think we're getting, we're probably getting closer. And one of the things is wearables. And it looks like you have, oh, is yeah. that an Apple watch? That's what saved me. Yeah. 
I, I think as we take more control of our data and we have more help from technology to use that data for diagnosis, we'll be able to find things either on our own or sooner or things that medicine's not necessarily looking for. I might be cynical, but, but the perception I have is there's probably more profit in the research end of rare diseases, but in the treatment end, it's not profitable. Right. It's not some of it is really expensive. Even back in the day, there's there's a blood product called hematin that they give porphyria patients. At the time, the, the list price for one dose was $5,200. And insurance could knock that down, but it was still at least $1,000 or $1,200. And you might need this every week or several weeks or every day, several times a day when you're in the hospital, oh depending. When, when you were doing the, the research, what kind of memories did it bring up? Did it bring back traumatic feelings, some memories of where it was? So I wrote this book much closer to the events, right? I finished this book by 2007. And so for me, it was not so much an exercise of recollection. It was an exercise of therapy. And a lot of people use writing as therapy. Sometimes uh, some writers will talk about it's hard to, to read through somebody else's tears. And I really didn't want this to be that book, right? I didn't want it to be all my personal pain. I wanted it to be a story that people could relate to and around themes that they could understand. So certainly work and parenting and health were themes that people could latch on to. And it wasn't just, oh, poor me, you know, me and my family went through this, but hopefully it, it's something bigger. And honestly, I, I think it's kind of an entertaining story too. I've had people tell me, not to brag, but that they found it compelling. It was hard for them to put it down. There, There is a momentum to the story that goes into it. It's tough to read. Um, I just literally today uploaded the files for the audiobook. But in doing uh, sections of the audiobook, yeah, you know, I got a little emotional. It's, it's tough to go back and do that. And if you really engage, it's like, wow, yeah, those are tough times. Are you narrating the audiobook yourself? Yeah, that's one of the things I've picked up. Um, I started shortly before the pandemic. Uh, my current wife had always said, oh, you have a great voice. I love listening to you. You should do a podcast or something. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you have to say that. You're my wife. And then <laughs> legally, I saw this. Exactly. I saw this uh, one night course in one of the local Parks and Recs catalog to get an introduction to the voiceover industry. And I said, OK, you and I are going to this because we both you it was your idea. So let's go do this. And it was interesting. And uh, so I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll look into this a little more. Turns out there's a great school for voice acting right here in Sausalito, which is not too far from me. So took classes for a couple of years to really um, hone my skill because this is something I never, ever really thought I would ever do. And yeah, so now this was my sixth audiobook I've recorded in the last little more than a year. Holy cow, I didn't know <laughs> that part. Yeah, yeah. That, that must be interesting. It is. It's it's a great craft, you know, like like writing, like a lot of things. It's a craft you can learn. Um, in some ways, it's really competitive. There's a lot of people out there doing it. And there's people who've done like, you know, 400 audiobooks. They're clearly a little better at it than I am. Or they've had a background in radio or singing or right. acting or any of that other stuff. But uh, but I think there's also plenty of room for anybody who's good at a craft. Your voice, I'm not just kissing mm -hmm. up because you're here, but your voice is mm -hmm. engaging. I like listening to you. There are yeah. some people that, why is this person in the business? Because oh, that, oh yes. I'm going to put that audio book down. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm Like I said, it's a craft. Some people are better at the craft than others, uh, definitely. 
What's the one thing you hope people take out of this book? A friend of mine asked me, you know, what's the through line of this book? And I have to say commitment. I think commitment is important. Some people call it perseverance. And I think it it trumps a lot of stuff. And it will get you through a lot of stuff when, you know, money and talent and good looks and fortune and all those other things aren't working. You always have that, right? You can always have commitment or perseverance. So I think that's one thing that I really hope people meditate on from the book. Interestingly, totally unrelated to the book, like after I wrote the book, I went off and did other things because that book just wasn't happening. And one of the things I did was I got an MBA. And in one of my classes, we had to do, yeah, I know, I just keep doing stuff. Wow. Um, I got I to keep myself busy. I get bored otherwise. And in one of the classes, we had to do some personal development stuff. And I did what's known as a card sort, uh, where you get a bunch of cards and I made up my own, like 50 or 60 of different values. And, and what I wanted to do was try and get down to like a set of five values that I really felt, you know, encompassed me and could guide me. And, and one of those is dedication. And so I, I, think, I think that's always been me, but having, having that sort of concrete, making it a conscious um, thing that I acknowledge, and, and also then just building online. If that's one of my values, you should turn to your values when you know, you're confused, when life's hard, you got to make a decision. And so that's one of the things I can turn to, like, how does my dedication show up in this situation? Or is, is it not? You know, sometimes you can go overboard on, on any value, frankly. Parenting. Let's talk about parenting for a second. What would... Oh, man. Parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Step parenting in particular. So I didn't have any kids of my own, but Connie had three boys from her previous relationships. One of our neighbors in Spokane told me a great line that being a step parent is like being France at the UN. Yeah, you have a vote on the Security Council, but does it really matter? You know, do you really count? <laughs> and and I, I, I take that to heart sometimes. I learned a lot and I probably have more to learn if I was still a parent. But one of the things Connie always encouraged me to do is parent more out of a sense of enjoying your kids and enjoying your family. And uh, my, the family I grew up in was a lot of stuff. I grew up in a military family and, you know, think there was, there was discipline, there was order. We did, we did certain things often out of obligation, not necessarily out of joy. And I think that's one of the lessons I took out is just, you should enjoy the people that are around you. Even if they're your kids, even if they're driving you nuts, you should enjoy it. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I have a 19 year old, but she hasn't driven me crazy. I've probably driven her crazy a couple of times. Do you uh, still keep in contact with 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 the boys? Uh, I do not. So um, one of the things people will read in the afterword of the book. So Connie's oldest boy actually passed away in 2014. Oh wow! Um, yeah, from from all sorts of medical complications. And then his two younger brothers, uh, one I believe is still in Spokane, and the other one's over in the Seattle area. But no, I made a decision after Connie passed away that. What those boys probably really needed was some peace in their life. They didn't need people fighting about them or over them or around them anymore. And I figured their dad, their biological dad, could do a decent job of being a parent and probably better than I could, right? He knew them better. He had a lot more experience. He wasn't in the place I was where, you know, I still had to deal with a business that was a struggle and settling my wife's estate and a teenage boy at the time who was very sick, 
finding a new job. I mean, I had a lot of stuff on my plate. So, so I just figured, you know, I didn't need one more thing and they didn't need one more thing in their life. What they needed was probably, like I said, some peace. I have no idea how hard it would be to lose your mom when you're 11 or 12. You miss the local planet days? Um, some things, yes, absolutely. Um, the bills probably not, right? <laughs> right, right. We had a great team. Team had a great time. It was great feeling that connected yeah. to a community. And that that's one of the things that kind of got me into it is I noticed that people lived in Spokane, but they weren't really connected to it in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of the things we wanted to address was Spokane is, is a great place to be, not just be from, right? Right, so, absolutely. So that part I missed. You know, I, I was involved with it for a little bit after you sold it. And uh, uh -huh. Paulette started taking it to a different realm. I always looked at it as like being a in-your-face kind of uh, anti-establishment. And she started yeah, going I mean, Sierra Club on me, and I didn't, I didn't like that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't like that that vibe. So, well, I mean, it's supposed to be alternative, and there's lots yeah. of different alternatives, right? And every publication has to have a viewpoint, and when that changes, that's tough. Would you do it again uh, with somebody else's money? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not monetizing this podcast and I've got some good topics coming up. I remember those days when we had a strip club advertisement and then somebody would pull their advertisement because they didn't agree yeah. with them advertising. And it was just, come on guys. And, and you know, those are legal businesses, right? They yeah. deserve a chance to advertise and you deserve a chance to put your ad where you want. I'm, but advertising is a tough game. It was tough 20 years ago. It's only gotten harder um, between technology on one hand, which has really fractured the marketplace oh, yeah. um, for for smaller people, and then consolidation on the other hand, where you know the Telecommunications Act of '96 let, for instance, all the radio stations really consolidate, um, and, and so you're stuck between the you know the crumbs for all the little guys and just the giant piles of money for the other people. Tom Grant was a big part of the local planet. How did it feel to have him on staff? Tom was great. Tom was a godsend. I was surprised that we could ever get somebody of Tom's caliber. I mean, the man has amazing education, amazing awards, amazing experience. He's also just a load of fun to be around. He was in some ways the most alternative of our alternative crew. And yet he was old enough to be most people's father. I will tell you a funny story about Tom when he first showed up. Um, so one of our staffers was Jeremy and Jeremy's dad at the time was the president of the Spokane Chamber of Commerce. Rich Hadley, right? Yeah, great guy. So one Saturday, uh, Rich and his wife and their 13-year-old daughter came up the, to our offices to try and find Jeremy to take him out to lunch. And the moment they stepped off the elevator, they heard just the loudest and most profane rap music coming out of the offices <laughs> to the point where <laughs> Jeremy's mom clamped her hands over her daughter's ears and steered <laughs> her by the head into a conference room right by the elevator. And, and Rich went off to find out who was making all this racket. And lo and behold, it was Tom. Uh, he, he was moving into the first office he had ever really had as a journalist after over 20 years. He'd never had an actual office of his own. So he was over the moon and enjoying it. Jeremy was a, uh, he was a talent, man. He was a great graphic artist. He was. Yeah. He was. He, he did great design for us. The deal with Jeremy, he, he came to us and he really wanted to write and he wanted to write about music. And we're like, that's great, but we're tiny. We, we need some sales help and you've got a marketing background. Tell you what, you, 
join us for sales. You can build our, our music business that way. And if you hit this certain level, we'll have the money to pay you. Well, he hit that in about six months. Yeah. He was fired up, ready to do that. Continued on that mission of building music in Spokane. He just did it from the editorial side, then. but he did great work for us. He was plugged in in that, mar- in that, in that community. Yeah. And he had a real sense of what it takes to, to build not just our coverage, but to build a music scene in a community. And I think, think Spokane, I hope, is better off for it. I think it's why Spokane has placed, I think it's the knitting factory now, yeah. the, the concert hall, among other places. I think it's why more acts are coming to Spokane. That's what attracted me to the local planet because of the music. I wasn't necessarily a fan of some of the genres of music back then, but I loved the fact that the local planet covered it. Because at the end of the day, these guys are artists and the local planet was a great source for that type of content. We were part of a, something called the Association of Alternative Newsweek, a group that includes people like The Stranger and Willamette Week and uh, LA Weekly and those sorts of uh, papers. Uh, we were the youngest paper in at least recent memory to get admitted. admitted admission was competitive. You had to apply and compete. And we got in in our first time in our first year. There's a lot of people who wait 10 years and still don't qualify to get in. So we were very happy about that. But one of the things you get when you join the AAN, at least back in the day, is you get access to a whole set of financial benchmarks of how other papers like you around the nation are doing. And so you have something financially to aim for. And that really helped us in terms of, okay, where where are we falling down financially? Where could we do better? Uh, once we got that, uh, we started doing better, but that also showed up probably a little late in the whole other drama that was going on about family and health and and all that other stuff. So I guess the moral of that story is go find some benchmarks. I remember reading those rankings and the mm-hmm. local planet was ranked fairly high for for how young it was. We we did amazing stuff in, yeah. you know, 24 to 28 pages a week. We, right after 9-11, well, 9-11 was a crazy day. And since the country feels like it's going there anyways, I can tell that story a bit. People don't remember 9-11-2001 was a Tuesday. And Tuesdays were the days that we sent the paper to the printer. Mm-hmm. We woke up knowing that our content's done. We have to assemble it and send it off. And then all the news stories came in about 9-11. Honey made the, the absolutely right decision that we had to throw out the entire paper and rewrite it in a day, which we did. It was ugly as sin when it finally got printed, but it was compelling. And, and it stayed compelling for that entire week when everything else was changing and stories were coming and going. I'm really proud about how we did that. The story that came out the week later was something that Tom put together. He called his professors at Columbia in New York and asked if the students at the journalism school in Columbia would write a mosaic or a cooperative story about their experience at 9-11. And it was called Seven Days at Ground Zero. It won the, the Best Features Award for AAN papers under 50,000 circulation nationwide, which I, I find amazing that we would win for our 9-11 coverage of New York in Spokane in our first year. That is amazing. Uh, that that was nuts. But the other thing people might not realize is that we also won back-to-back media criticism awards from the association, which is also a big deal. And I think that is a key role that alternative media can and should play is criticism of the mainstream media. 
it was ripe for for that in Spokane when we were there. But I think in general, that's something that doesn't get done nearly enough. And, and I think, you know, there's lots of people who will say, whatever about the lamestream media, or these people are too liberal, or these people are too conservative. But I think thoughtful criticism is much a part of a free press as just having a free press. Earlier, you sort of touched on monopolies. You've been out of the market for a while, but these days in Spokane, there's only one quote unquote alternative news weekly. Now, here we are 18 years later. Do you think there's room for another alternative weekly in this area? I think if you're smart, there's always a chance to define an audience and serve them. And that's what you need to do as a publication. But it's also hard in terms of there's just more competing for people's attention. There's podcasts like this mm-hmm. and audiobooks and so many digital publications, not to mention all the print stuff. Books, especially during the pandemic, took off. So print is not dead. There's so much content. Content's gotten so easy to make and distribute. How do you get it in front of people? And it comes down to promotion. Did you change anything about the local planet after you and Connie purchased it? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. So some of the background of that paper, that paper was actually started by a computer wholesaler in Spokane because they wanted a different place for their customers to advertise. A monthly computer magazine had failed before. And so they went down this alternative route, figuring that people who were young and educated bought tech stuff just like everybody else. So it'd be a, a good opportunity. And Connie got hired to be the editor, the very first editor of that publication. But that company quickly grew tired of doing a publication. Connie had a hand in starting to define it. But once she and I bought that is when we really put our stamp on it. We said, these are the things we're going to care about. We're going to care about youth and youth culture. We're going to care about um, social justice and equity. We're going to care about environment and environmental justice. We're going to care about um, gender and gender equity. Those sorts of things. Absolutely. We, we definitely did put our stamp on that. One thing that we tried to do is not tell people that we were objective, because I don't think any publication or media outlet is objective. You have to be subjective just in terms of deciding what you're going to cover and who you're going to serve. That's one level of bias right there. And then we're all naturally biased. And then there's just circumstantial bias too, right? If you show up at a, at a, a crowd event, if you stand on one end or the other, you're going to see different things. You're going to talk to different people. It, it's just all very, so not objective. I don't want to say subjective, but it's not objective. You can't be a complete object on these things. What you can be, and what we tried to be, was fair and transparent. Those are things you can do. And I think people still look for that in our media. I haven't heard so many people these days criticizing media for being subjective. It's really more, are they being fair? Are they being transparent? And and I think fewer and fewer of them are as they're serving these polarized bases that they have, at least political media. I think they've lost that transparency and that fairness. Well, Matthew, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I know people who know you are listening to this episode of the podcast will enjoy catching up with you in your life these days and learning about your new book called making a small fortune well i appreciate the opportunity to to check in with the world of spokane and to share this story i think there's a lot of it here absolutely well thank you and that does it for this episode of the spokane show thank you very much for listening and please don't forget to follow the show 
share it with your friends and give it a high rating. I really appreciate it. Until next time. 